I have my back to this thing as it's kind of showing all its teeth and, and doing what it does. And she pulls up her gun and it jams and she can't get a shot off. And then I look over my other shoulder and now my safety guy has his gun out. So there's two guns pointed at me and I have a wolf behind me and I'm in quite a pickle. Just very scary situation. And yeah, you don't want to be that guy that that dies making a reality television you show. You really don't, Ross. It, you, you really you don't. don't. That wouldn't be a good end to my story. Hi, and welcome to Fun with Failure, a podcast about individual and organizational resilience. I'm your host, Dr. Alexis Carrero. Let's have some fun. My guest today is Ross Radcliffe. Ross is a cinematographer who has filmed TV, documentary, and commercial content for clients such as Netflix, Discovery, Animal Planet, and the Travel Channel. He is also the director of photography and a producer on National Geographic series, Life Below Zero, Port Protection, currently airing on Tuesdays at 8 p.m. Ross is a licensed drone pilot in Canada and the U.S., and his work has taken him around the world to countries like Australia, Austria, Belize, Canada, Colombia, Germany, Mexico, Thailand, USA, and Zambia. And last but not least, he's also one of my former students. Hey, Ross. How are you? Good. How are you doing? Good. It's great to see you. Yeah, you as well. Yeah, it's been a minute. It's been a long minute. <laughs> yeah. When did you graduate? 2014. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, that was like, you know, nine years ago. And then I don't think, I think the last time I saw you was maybe like four or five years ago. Yeah, I think, I think you're right. Ah, I'm trying to remember. I think I came to campus while you were still working at the university. Yeah. Yeah. So I was a, you were a guest speaker in the class. Oh, right. Yes. I remember that. Yeah. And one of the stories that we were telling the students was about how, you know, early in your career, you know, you're Canadian, was, mm-hmm. you know, you were having some difficulty getting a visa to work in the Huge U.S. Difficulty. Yeah. yeah. And I was just like, one of the things that I suggested, I was like, Ross, you got to apply for The Bachelor. <laughs> 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 there was people taking photos that day. And there's a picture I have of you, like after I said it. And you're just like half amused, but like half horrified <laughs> at the same time. And I'm like... Maybe considering it. <laughs> half, yeah, like a third considering it. But I just thought like, oh, this is great. Because I would like spitballing. I'm like, dude, we, we got to get your work. I'll do whatever it takes. Yeah. You know, we got to think outside the box. Yeah. Thankfully, I've made it work. Yeah. Well, actually, you know what? I would love to start with a failure story of mine that I think is kind of fun and and it does have to do with you. Right. So you majored in communication. I was a communications professor. You majored in communications. You took a ton of courses with me. I think like over four years, we studied together every single year, Uh, but Mm -hmm. we didn't have a true film program. Right. Like most of the courses were just analysis and criticism. And there was like Mm -hmm production 101 and you know we did a sort of a small documentary together one Mm -hmm. summer but like 99% of what you've been able to accomplish and do in your career is because you're motivated and you're self-taught primarily so a couple years ago I listened to you on a podcast and you were talking about like oh yeah you know I was self-taught you know we didn't have a film program like a lot of the stuff I had to figure out by myself and you know just kind of really figure it out you know and I remember like hopping on Instagram and sending you this long 
nerdy. No, like, well, actually, Ross, we studied media criticism together, and you learned a lot of visual techniques about what you t- what to do. And, you- and it was the dumbest, stupidest, e- like, message I've ever sent. But you were so kind and so generous. You're like, you're right. You know, I did learn a lot. So I, just, I wanted to apologize for that because I was so stupid. Oh, uh, that's fine. I think... In the context, like when I was on that podcast and I was I was talking um, about that, I think it was more like the the technical end of things, like you know the the big fancy cameras and all that end of it. Because yeah, Queens didn't have that. I mean, you guys did, you know, hand over the keys to the place to me more or less, which just allowed me to kind of learn everything super quickly because. I'm somebody that I think that learns well when I'm just like, all right, here's all this stuff, like figure it out, figure out how to make it work for you. And you guys gave me that opportunity. And then a lot of like, you know, you talked about like the critical and story stuff as far as like telling a story and all the elements of a story. We definitely learned that in school. I definitely learned that in school and and definitely learned how to like watch a film and and watch it critically and not just be like oh you know just losing yourself in the story but watching it from more of a like okay what are they doing here how are they telling this story that stuff was all honed in in the classroom for sure yeah yeah i mean that i'm i mean you know i'm obsessed with that with that stuff right like angles lighting words pacing tone like all of it and yeah. what was cool was in I think it was the art of storytelling class that I that I taught. You actually made your first narrative film in that, which I just thought was you know so incredible. And it was part of our like certainly part of my strategy was with teaching. You know I'm not going to handhold like I'm not going to hold my students' hands and basically give them every single thing that they could possibly do because then you do that and they go into the real world and then they're like what do I do now? How does this work? But it's like, yeah, kind of go figure kind of go figure it out because if you approach any, really any topic with a sense of curiosity and passion and drive and if you're really motivated then you will figure it out and you have figured it out. Well, like yeah, that that really sums up well like what my career has been like since then making the kind of television that I make. It's yeah, we have a plan almost every time that plan doesn't happen um, and you figure it out and you got to, you know, keep the the ship moving ahead, even if it is not anywhere close to what you thought it was going to be. Yeah. I mean, making that film, just thinking about it makes me cringe all the errors we made. I mean, the first <laughs> thing we did was we just wrote ourselves into a corner and it's like, oh, great. Like, this is a great idea. But, you know, can three 19 year olds pull this off? Yeah. <laughs> With limited experience and... And, you know, but lessons learned. I enjoyed that very much. And I loved just the fact that, you know, you taught us all this stuff and it wasn't, you know, you gave us that option. Okay, you can go write a paper or you can actually go do this. Like, go actually make this thing. You've talked about it enough. Why don't you go do it? And that with me, and I feel like with television and filmmaking as a whole, like there's nothing like actually doing it. And that was the first opportunity to really do it. Yeah. I mean, you can sit and you can analyze a film or a a thousand films, but until you try to make one yourself, it's just, you know, it's theoretical. That's all it is. It's just theoretical. And then when you're finally like, especially when you're in the editing room and you're like, oh, I shot this wrong and there's no way to fix it. 
you oh, don't you don't make that humbling. yeah you don't make that mistake again that's like that's where fa- failure is an incredible teacher mm-hmm. there's nothing like watching your own footage and yeah there's nowhere to hide <laughs> you know it, it is what it is you got what you got and is that enough what would you do differently next time yada 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 but yeah very humbling experience yeah so let's kind of let's back up for a second. We can kind of talk a little bit about, you know, kind of where you started and then like how you got to where you are. So like where are you from originally and where are you now? Uh, so I am from a town called Nanaimo and that is on Vancouver Island in British Columbia, Canada. It's like pretty much as far west as you can go in Canada. So born and raised in the northwest. And now I, um, just for the past six months, am living in uh, Seattle, Washington. Nice. Okay. How'd you yeah. land in Seattle? Uh, well, given, you know, work-wise, I, I have been living in Canada pretty much my whole, pretty much my entire professional career, but I've been working mainly, you know, entirely for American companies and mostly other than the international stuff I've done um, in the U.S., Um, and it's, you know, it was fine going back and forth, but, uh, with where my career's at now and where I would like it to go, um, I just think business wise, it makes a lot of sense for me to be located here in the U S and Seattle's a place where I can still get home and see my, uh, my parents and my brother and family in a couple hours. And, uh, I love, I love the Northwest. So it's a good spot for me to be. Yeah, that's great. Where do you want your career to go? It's a great question. It's something I like have been telling myself, you know, at the start of the new year, I like to like kind of sit down and refocus and write out my goals and, you know, just like assess big picture, like, you know, what I have been doing, where I've been going. But I think right now I, I really enjoy the the type of television I have been making and um, I've been able to progress quite a bit since I started and I would like to continue that progression, whether that be, you know, continue to be behind the camera or um, I have been in the last three, four years been doing a lot more producing as well as shooting. So I just kind of want to keep going down that path. Um, I know eventually I'm probably going to be going to have to go one direction or the other, but I, I have not been forced to make that decision yet. So keep my options open. Yeah. So still maybe best of both worlds right now. All right. So when you were in Vancouver as a little kid, what did you want to be? Was this was this like the I'm going to be a you know cinematographer for National Geographic? You know, and when you were in Vancouver, what was the plan? When you know what was ten year old Ross's version of his life? I think ten year old Ross would have wanted to do that if he even knew that was a possibility. And quite frankly, you know, growing up watching TV, I didn't have like early in my life. I never like thought, you know, I never really thought of that as a profession, and I never thought, you know, someone coming from you know, a smaller town in Canada, like, I don't know how you don't, you don't know what you don't know. And you, there, there doesn't seem like a pathway to that career. I think when I was young, I, I, you know, I wanted to be a pilot. Mainly, I wanted to be a professional athlete of some, some kind. And that's really what guided me for my first like 20 years of my life, I think. But obviously that changed um, as soon as I got to university and life happened. And honestly, you are one of the people that you really are the person I would say for sure that kind of opened that door for me and said, this is something you like doing. And yes, it's hard and it's intimidating, but someone's got to do it. And if you want to do it bad enough and you are for real about this, there is this opportunity and you just have to go after and figure it out, Yeah, which I did. Yeah. 
I think one of the most powerful elements of your of your story, right? And as a storyteller, right, you know this, like conflict is what makes yeah. a good story. And, you know, if we're scripting out Ross Radcliffe's story, right, the the primary conflict, like the the cliffhanger, the the crossroads for you occurred, right? A professional athlete as an undergrad came to school on a lacrosse scholarship, interested in becoming a professional lacrosse player, got drafted, right, by your like professional team in Canada. Mm-hmm. While you were taking these film courses and these media courses and figuring out your passion for cinematography. And it was like the day after. Can you tell us the story a little bit about because so you got drafted and then what happened? Yeah. So um, I grew up playing lacrosse in Canada and um, through some of the teams I played on, I had the opportunity to move down south, which a lot of guys did that were my age and in my situation, you know, had the opportunity to fortunately get a scholarship to to move down south and live somewhere else and do something different, which I jumped all over. And, you know, lacrosse was my life. It was what I pretty much was my the love of my life until I was about 20, 21 years old. And I poured all my time into it. And I ended up at university down there in Charlotte. And I played three years before a bunch of concussions essentially caught up with me. And the the final concussion that did me did me in as far as my playing days was I think like three or four days after I had been drafted into the um, it's called the WLA, the Western Lacrosse Association. It's a part of like the Canadian um, Lacrosse Association, which is a professional league. I was drafted to do that and kind of riding that high and everything I'd worked for. And, you know, you're at that age, I was so hyper focused on that. I, I had other stuff going on. But you know, that was that was it. And I was a very, very focused young man. And that all came crashing down very, very quickly within the matter of a week. It was, okay, I got another concussion. This has been, you know, six or seven, this is getting concerning. And then meetings with doctors and the effects of the concussion and, you know, not being able to sleep and, you know, being sensitive to light and all this horrible stuff happening to me. And then being confronted with the fact that this thing you've poured years and years of your life into doing and are passionate about, it's gone. It it was gone. The thing I had the hardest time with during that whole process was my identity was totally wrapped up in this in Ross, the lacrosse player. That is what I did. You know, everything had a purpose and 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 it was all driving towards that goal of being a professional lacrosse player, which I was just on the cusp of uh, making happen for myself. And it was gone. And I mean, I, yeah, that was, it was, as you know, it was a very, very tough time for me because you're just, you know, like I said, my identity was me as that person and it was gone in an instant. And I had to figure out what I was going to do with myself. Where was I going to put all that time? And yeah, I, I luckily had some, some awesome, yourself included, some awesome people in my life that kind of said, hey, you have a passion for this cinematography camera work and you can do this and that's when i kind of slowly but surely took my determination my drive my passion for lacrosse and i I took that work ethic i had in that goal and i just shifted it to this Uh, and quite frankly i have not stopped since 
It's been, I mean, I remember when the concussion happened, right? Like part of the protocols is that the faculty get, you know, letters from coaches and from the medical staff. And it's, yeah, he's not going to be in class for a while. Like he can't keep his eyes open. He has to stay in a dark room. He can't function. Like this isn't good for him. And not only just being like worried about you physically, right? But then, and at the same time, to your point, like your identity is completely wrapped up in that. Your career is completely wrapped up in that. You had just gotten drafted, like, you know, at the top of your life, it's like at the peak is when just in a split second, it all comes crashing down and you're trying to figure out, I'm sick everything hurts. I I have to stay by myself. I'm completely isolated. I'm disconnected. And I'm, and you were devastated. And, you know, it was a really, really emotional time. And, you know, lucky it's one of the benefits of going to a small liberal arts school is that the faculty know you very, very well. Right. And we just kind of rallied and, knowing your passion, you know, and what one of the conversations we had, you know, was I, I could see myself doing lacrosse, but I could also see myself, you know, really taking this other route. And you weren't sure, like, which one was going to happen, you know, and then getting drafted made it kind of easy. Like that decision was kind of like made for you. And then another decision was made for you. And it was like, okay, you know what? Like, take take the time you need to mourn the life you thought you were going to have and take the time you need to mourn the identity that, you know, you're now losing. But just know you have this other path laid out in front of you and you can do it. And it's been so incredible to see what you've done with it. And with that, you know, I guess... It's not really a second chance, but it's just a different chance. Yeah, exactly. I I feel incredibly fortunate. Um, yeah, I and and once I did make that switch of like, okay, this is what I'm doing. I, I really was. I, I was a, a bit of a bull. I just like went for it full full on, just like I was doing with lacrosse, and it everything's worked out. Um, I really cannot imagine my life any other way. So yeah. I remember yeah. when um, the Daily Show came came to Charlotte because they were covering the Democratic convention, and through the school, you know, they were they were looking for internships. And I remember seeing that you know the Daily Show production intern come across my desk, and it was just like emailed you immediately. It was like you have to apply for this, and you yeah. just you were like, all right, I'm on it, and you got the Daily Show gig. It was, I mean, even that was kind of crazy that you just that opportunity, and then that opportunity. Like dominoes just opened up a whole other thing from there. I mean, talk about a, a crash course in how to like just being on set, set etiquette, you know, where your place is, how things work. That was a crash course. Like, I don't know, I think I worked for them for two, three weeks and pulled crazy hours, but was having the time of my life and learned so much and really put me ahead of the game because I think I was 20 or 19 or 20 when I did that. And to get that kind of set experience at that age, you know, set me up where I could walk on any other set and be a PA and just kind of know how to fit in, know what my role is and know where I can kind of stand out. Um, I was super fortunate to get that. But, you know, like when I applied for that, didn't didn't think I had a chance. Um, 
but it all worked out. And, that, you know, that was one thing that led to another thing, honestly, you know, that working as a production assistant um, with them for those couple weeks, um, the you know, Scott Galloway, the owner of Suzy Films, came to one of the, our live uh, tapings. Suzy Films is a production company local in Charlotte. And so he got tickets and he came to the show and I just happened to be the guy that was taking him to a seat that that day and and quickly met him and you know exchanged some info and then the next thing you know when the daily show left i was working as a production assistant for him in charlotte and had more opportunities to get on set you know it all just gets like a snowball it just if you're on top of it and you care and you want it you'll figure out you know where the next move is yeah and i love that you know you said yes Right. It's like, I think, again, you know, like we had built up enough trust in our relationship that I was like, this is it. You have to apply for The Daily Show. And it was just like, yeah, I'm going to do that. And you did it like you did the work. Right. Scott hands you his card. It's like, hey, reach out if you're interested in a job. You did it. You followed through. It's like with, you know, and it's not that the losing the, you know, the lacrosse placement on the team or like losing your position and losing that career was a was a failure but in the same sense where you were talking about you know like I lost my identity you know like there there's probably feelings of you know my body isn't my body failed me my body I thought I thought I was stronger than I was and I should be able I should have been able to handle this or I shouldn't have gotten these concussions like you know we should all over ourselves right about what we should or shouldn't do and right. so it probably still did feel like a failure, right? You were probably mourning, mourning it like it was a failure, but you were able to, again, turn that around and then say yes to these other, like it didn't say yes to these other opportunities. The thing that wasn't meant for you didn't stop you from building this other incredible life. This episode of Fun with Failure is brought to you by Delivery Path. Are you happy with your website provider? Because I definitely am. I use Delivery Path because they specialize in web hosting, security, and optimization. That means my site is fast, secure, and stable. It's online all the time, and I don't have to worry about it because that's their job, and they're really good at it. They take care of the daily, weekly, and monthly upgrades, so my site is always up to date. Unlike discount WordPress web hosting companies, Delivery Path provides concierge-level customer service. If you ever have a problem with your website, they don't just use chatbots to help you, they actually chat with you. When you call Delivery Path, someone local answers the phone. When it comes to WordPress website hosting, you get what you pay for. So if you think your business is worth $5, then get a discount vendor. But if you really want your website to work for you, then let the experts at Delivery Path manage it for you. And they're offering a special discount for our listeners. If you mention the promo code FUN, you'll get 10% off your first three months. For more information, visit deliverypath.com or email service at deliverypath.com. Do you ever wish you had more confidence as a public speaker? Is it holding you back from getting to the next level in your career? My company is The Pitch Prof, and my specialties are in business presentations and public speaking. If you want to advance your career or your business, hire a communication coach, because what you say is as important as how you say it. Regardless of your skill level as a public speaker, I can help you communicate with confidence. To learn more or schedule a call, visit 
thepitchprof.com. Yeah, I mean, it, it did feel like a failure at the time, especially, you know, with being so close to what my ultimate goal was, you know, having been drafted, it was like right there. It was right there. And it was everything I was working for. So when it all, you know, fell apart, it, of course, it, it did feel like a failure. But what I learned through that journey has totally informed me as far as just like a, a attitude you bring to life every day, honestly, like the kind of person when you show up on set that I feel like I bring to the table, the leadership, the, you know, what I, what I brought in that world is what I still bring in this world. I'm still, you know, I've learned to kind of disconnect my identity so much with like the things like that, like I did back then. But when you're 18 years old, you think you're invincible. I don't think, I think everyone thinks that to learn the hard way you're not was very, very hard. And again, from a storytelling perspective, I remember you in my office that first time when you were actually able to come back to classes and able to leave your room and able to function. And it was still in a limited capacity, right? You didn't go from being in your room all day from like having this massive concussion to being on campus and in bright classrooms 12 hours a day, but you were sort of venturing out little by little. And you were a mess, I remember the first time you came to my office and you were a mess. You were just, it was rough. But from a storytelling perspective, right? To see the like the narrative arc then swing towards redemption, right? And to read your bio and to be like, National Geographic, Animal Planet, you're a producer, you're, you know? It just makes it even that much sweeter because you had that plot point from a character arc, you know? It's just yeah, like, the even the worst, the worst things that happen to us the best stories and this is something i i get into battles with cast members with all the time making you know making reality television or documentaries a lot of the time i'm filming people you know you know i just filmed a show called port protection um for national geographic up in alaska for the past year and you know you, you film these people do these like everyday chores or whatever and they just you show up and you know they want it to go well. They just want everything to go smooth and they don't want it to go well. And the, the moment something doesn't go well, they start to get nervous. And then I let's say, listen, like, what's your favorite movie? And, you know, does everything go well for the main character in that movie? Would the success at the end mean as much without that failure in the middle or without that surprise or chaos or whatever it is? Like, it, it, it's the journey that that makes that end point wherever you get to what it is and what it means to you if everything just goes smoothly i don't know any movie that that happens in and if if there is one I, i'm pretty sure it wouldn't be a lot of fun to watch it would be pretty boring it would be so, so boring yeah like you like you said these these bumps in the road these hiccups these things not going according to plan they make the, out, the end outcome more worth it yeah it's it's true too because you know i do storytelling training now and i work with corporate teams and executive, I do executive coaching and storytelling coaching, you know, so like if they're telling their own story, how, you know, how did you get to tell us a little bit about yourself? I always say every superhero should have an, has an origin story. You should too, right? That's one of the things that I work with executives on so that it's not just, oh, how do you know, how did you get into this role? Oh, well, first I did this and then I did this and then two years later I did that and then I did this. Like, and it's just so boring. It just goes on and on and on. Like there's no narrative hook. And part of what happens with like, you know, in business and organization, the same thing. They don't want to talk about failure. They don't want to talk about the mistakes they made. 
But when you're managing a team of people, if you're like a C-suite executive or if you're, you know, upper level manager and you're managing a team of people, no one's going to come to you when they need help. If you're this vision of perfection who's never made a mistake or failed at anything, they're going to avoid you because they're going to think, oh, I'm not as good. I can't do this. They're going to, you know, they're going to look down on me. But it's when we share our failures and when we share our mistakes that other, it makes us more relatable. It makes us more interesting. And then it also really helps, you know, yeah, it's like we learn those lessons from those things. So, yeah, there's no such thing as a good story without conflict. Exactly. Yeah. It would, it would just be all butterflies and roses all the time. And I don't think it would be too interesting. We want to see people go through things that aren't easy to go through Yeah. when we're telling stories. And yeah, I totally agree. I would say that would be my origin story with lacrosse and all that. I mean, that's certainly what kickstarted me. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about, so you leave college, you, you know, you're working for Suzy Films, you wind up working in Alaska. And my memory uh, is that you worked on a show. It was in, I don't know if it was The Last Alaskans. What was the name of it? Uh, well, I think what I did, so I worked for Suzy Films. And um, so coming out of university as a foreigner in the United States, I had a one-year visa granted to me. So it pretty much was like, you're educated in America. We're going to give you one year to see if you can stick with an American company. And because you're American educated, they want to give you know companies the opportunity to kind of retain you. Um, so I worked for Suzy Films, but as the, the year was kind of winding down, um, you know, my visa was coming up. I, I didn't have anyone to sponsor my visa. So I was kind of forced with this, another dilemma on what do I do? Do I move back to Canada and try to get into the film industry in Canada where I'm kind of starting from scratch and have no contacts? which kind of is what I um, opted to do. Um, and I moved back home and I spent six months not knowing what the heck I was going to do. And I thought I was going to have to give up at a certain point. Um, I mean, you could, have, you could have applied for the bachelor, Ross. I'm just saying. <laughs> it, it, that, that wasn't quite an option at that point, <laughs> which I think I'm kind of glad. <laughs> oh, thank God. Oh, my God. That, that is a nightmare. Thank God. Uh, that was the worst advice I've ever given you. I was just like, I mean, you know, like, we got to figure out something. <laughs> Dear God. That would have been funny. That would have been funny. Um, but, you know, I, I, through some through a uh, director of photography I met while working for Suzy Films, he actually had a production, uh, a vet show going on in Canada for National Geographic Wild called Dr. Oakley Yukon Vet. And I had hit it off with this DP. So he said, hey, do you want to be my assistant cameraman? And we can work in Canada. So you should be good to go, which I was. Um, and during so I was I was working on that show. Um, and while I was working on that show, I was able to obtain um, a U.S. work visa. So I was finally had the, the doors open back up to me. So I was able to take work with American production companies and work in the U.S. Um, and Dr. Oakley, Yukon vet, it. it obviously it takes place in the Yukon, which is the part of Canada right next to Alaska up north. Um, and while I was on the show, it kind of morphed into her kind of going back and forth over the border from Alaska to the Yukon, which was great because then I was able to travel, um, work on both, both sides of the border and kind of be like a fixture on that crew. That was, that was like the first freelance gig that, that I, that I had out of, uh, college. And what was the one, I know at some point you did work in Alaska cause you were telling me about, it was like you and four guys or three guys. It was the entire crew for this reality TV show. You all slept in like one tent together. 
there was one person whose job, I think it was just to kind of stand by with a rifle so that if a bear attacked you, you would have a fighting chance. And it was like 40 below zero. Did I get any of this right? Yeah, the, yeah. So I, uh, the the show I did after I worked on Doctor Oakley was a Discovery Channel show called The Last Alaskans, um, and it was like a docu series about. There's this huge area of Alaska as far north as you can go and as far east as you go, and it's it's called the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. Um, recently, it's been in the news a lot because there's been companies try to open it up for drilling, but thus far it is totally wild, uh, wild, and it's. It's a piece of land the size of South Carolina that's just tucked away and it's untouched. Um, and at the time, there were seven permits given away, uh, I think back in the 70s, to people to be able to live out there um, and just kind of, you know, they're all fur trappers, which I know is not such a fun thing to think about. But the, these are people that are living they are a part of the landscape. They are living with nature. They can't have anything with wheels, including wheelbarrows or anything like that. They can have snow machines in the winter. Um, that's it. They get, you know, dropped off on a plane that lands on the frozen river and they live out there. Um, and their stories are amazing. And, uh, you know, a lot of the cast members we had on that show, uh, were, you know, older and had spent their lives out there. Um, and the rule uh, with their permits was they were allowed to pass their permit down to uh, the next generation, and then that was going to be it. And it'll never ever be people living out there ever again. And everything, you know, their cabins that they've, they, their log cabins that they've built anywhere there when they're gone will rot into the earth, and they'll never, never be anyone there ever again. So I worked on that show for f- the full four years. I did four seasons of that show. Um, and we spent, you know, the whole year going out to the to the Arctic um, and living out there with these people. And like you said, we lived in. So there was three people on the on the TV side of the crew, and then there were two people to just. Um, there was like one one person, like you said, that would be our safety, who is just kind of our armed guard essentially. And then there would be one person kind of like taking care of our little base camp, cutting firewood because all we had were. Um, these these canvas tents that are called arctic ovens they're these like cool little dome tents you're you're one little safe haven from the elements and they have a little wood stove in them so they would cut firewood and make sure you know everything was okay and we had fruit food and and what have you but that show was i mean i still shake my head um that i was able to be a part of that it was it's one of the most special things i've been able to do in my career and i could tell you guys stories that would terrify you and uh, amazing things that happened and awesome stories and yeah that that show was very very special for me i was very happy to be a part of it it was an incredible show i did watch part of it and just i'm I'm glad that you added the context to the show right the last alaskans like once the permit is passed down and the children get the permit that's it this is and if the the children want the permit right yeah which is part of it Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. And it's like you, if uh, it kind of like, if anyone has ever seen the show alone, it's kind of like that. Like these people don't have anything. So, yes, like fur trapping, bad, animal cruelty, bad. But if they don't kill anything, they don't eat. Like these people are hungry. They are cold. They, everything, every single thing in their life revolves around living off brutal 
brutal conditions. And it was spectac- yeah. it was spectacular. And I love the fact I loved having someone on the inside of a reality TV show, you know, because it was just like, yeah, but come on, is like part of it staged? Like, you know, do they just like bring in a bear, you know? And you were just <laughs> like, uh, no, it's all legit. And so, yeah, I, I love that. I would love whatever story you have to tell. I'm, I am all ears on about that show. Um, yeah, I mean, some of them are a little bit graphic with the animals, but um, I mean, I can tell you. Uh, so this was actually my first shoot on the show. Uh, at some days with the wind chill when you're out on these you know frozen rivers you're looking at negative 60 now i've had people you know i had frost nip in my fingers so my fingers will never have the same amount of feeling in them ever again which is kind of like my badge of honor from working on the show i wouldn't recommend it the only benefit is i can grab really hot items of food (laughs) now and not feel it but um yeah, I mean, I guess a, good, a, a story I could tell about the, you know, behind the scenes is um, oftentimes when you're dealing with crazy remote places uh, like we were um, up in Alaska, um, travel plans don't um, aren't aren't hard in stone. They can change very quickly. So we were out um, in one of the locations filming with some of the cast for two weeks in the middle of winter. This was my first shoot on the show, and at the end of that two weeks, you're you're very excited to to get a shower. You're very excited to get home. You're excited to get some, some food and, um, just get up, get out of a sleeping bag for a couple of days. And, uh, we packed up all our things and we, you know, the planes land on just these huge frozen rivers and we just, you know, spend half a day like sledding all of our stuff over there and get it all piled up. And then together we all have to put on snowshoes and walk the runway to, to, like push down all the snow and compact it so the complaint can land and then take back off. So we do all that, get all ready. I'm very excited to leave, very ready to leave. It was a great shoot, but like I said, very, very excited for a shower. And, um, well, we get a satellite phone call and you're, you're not, you're not going anywhere. You guys have, you guys have to camp on the runway. You're, you're spending the night. And that went on for another four days. Wow. <laughs> And the the morale in camp gets pretty low when you know you, you you start to notice it's like oh we're eating a lot of soup I don't think there's a lot a lot of food left here um, and then on that fourth day uh, sure enough the plane lands and it's a tiny little plane as I'm sure you can imagine with just some skis in it it's just got four seats two in the front with the pilot included and two in the back and we pile up all of our Pelican cases as, as high as the ceiling. Um, and I, I get in the plane and I sit next, I'm sitting next to the pilot and we take off and it's, it's about mm, two, three hours of a plane ride back to Fairbanks where the production was based. And about an hour into the flight, I was fast asleep. And all of a sudden I, I woke up to that feeling like when you're on a roller coaster and you're about to, you're about to go down the big drop oh. and I opened my, I opened my eyes and the propeller isn't spinning. <laughs> it was very terrifying, and you know you're you're not like it's a smaller plane, so it can glide a bit, but you can feel that you're starting to plummet towards the earth. Um, and w- when you're dealing with planes in places like this, um, obviously they can be very hazardous. But I say if we were to crash and we were to even survive this crash, no one's going to find you. You're in you're in the middle of one of the biggest wildlife refuges in the world (laughs) and it's the middle of winter who's gonna find you um right a bear will find you 
a bear will probably find you. Yes, yeah. that's correct. And you will be very, very cold and you will be a popsicle when that bear finds you. Um, so I guess what essentially what happened this 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 airplane had two tanks in it, uh, two fuel tanks and uh, the pilot. Uh, I won't name him. So I'm totally throwing his career down the tubes. But uh, he didn't switch over to that second tank when he landed. He was supposed to. So we'd have the second tank fuel to get us back home. So we ran out of gas midair. Uh, and it was probably a minute of just sheer terror, just trying to not panic and yell or scream as you're kind of just gliding towards the earth, the tundra, and you can hear all these pelican cases behind you starting to shift forward. It's like, am I, am I going to get decapitated by one of these? Am I going <laughs> to be this guy that dies making a reality television show? Um, <laughs> fortunately, he was able to switch the tank. The prop started up and we kind of like made our way out of that nosedive but yeah, yeah that's that was, not that's really a, that's not a fun with failure that's just <laughs> that's, that's just a, a terrified with failure yeah that's a different podcast that's a terrified with failure <laughs> oh my god that's awful yeah although i bet he didn't, never made that mistake again i hope not i hope not yeah i hope not too what about animals did um were you guys ever charged by animals did it get a little dicey out there. I mean, you're literally, literally in the wild. You're on their territory. On the, on that production, that was always a big concern. Um, and being a cameraman, you, you know, I'm never armed. At, at maximum, I'll have like a can of bear spray on me or something like that. But um, I'm totally leaving my life in the hands of the whoever's been hired to be my safety um, on these types of shows. Um, and uh, I think a, a good story to tell would be um, it was, again, in, in winter out in the Arctic. Uh, I was with a cast member. And they had been having problems with a pack of wolves that were kind of just revolving around their home for uh, quite some time. And for those of you who are not too familiar with wolves, um, and especially out in the Arctic, they're, they're killing machines. They, they will kill things, not even for food. They just, if they see it, they kill it. They're pretty ruthless. Um, not to say that they should be killed for that. That's just the way they are. They're part of nature, but that's, you know, that's how they roll. So these people out there, if they get a pack of wolves that just start hovering around their camp, they're taking away their food source. So they're in direct competition for the same food source. Um, so if you have a pack of wolves, you know, kind of choking out your food, you're, you're going to do something to deal with it. So, uh, this, this man and his wife, um, set up a whole like network of traps that kind of went around their home. And it was something we were documenting, documenting and, and thinking, you know, would be a good story if something were to happen. And I think it was on the third or the fourth day. Um, it's the Arctic and it's the winter. So it was, I think eight, eight o'clock, nine o'clock in the morning. It's totally pitch black. You can't see a thing. Um, I woke up, we were in our cook tent, just having our morning breakfast, kind of going over what we wanted our day to, to look like. And the cast member who, uh, he, he left his home and ran over to our cook tent and was all frantic and was yelling wolves, wolves. We got wolves in our traps. We have wolves in our traps. We have wolves in our traps. So we quickly throw down what we're doing and grab our gear and start following him back to his place. Um, and we start rolling and, uh, I guess they were his wife's, um, traps. So she was going to be the one to kind of take the lead and deal with this. Um, and she, she comes out, she's a, she's a woman in her, um, I believe at that time she was in her sixties. 
Um, she didn't see the best. Um, oh, and no. it's totally pitch black. And oh, all God. you can hear is the most horrific sound of a dog, like, like screaming. And I, I it's terrible. I, 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 I honestly hate the sound of that. Um, I know because you're a dog lover too. That's I am brutal. a big yeah. time dog lover yeah, and it's like nail, nails on a chalkboard yeah. for sure. So we're hearing this noise and she grabs, she's got a rifle, she's got a handgun is kind of back up on her hip. Um, and it's like, I, like I've said, it's the Arctic. You got a million different layers on, she's got a headlamp on and we just essentially just start walking towards this noise and it's getting closer and it's getting closer and it's getting closer. And I'm working with another cameraman and I'm kind of beside the, this, this woman and he is kind of behind her so he can see kind of like over the shoulder of whatever she's going to shoot or if she needs to shoot something. Um, and as we get closer and closer and closer, we get to the point where it just feels like these wolves are on top of us and we can't see anything but we we throw our headlamps around and finally we make contact uh with the the wolf's eyes and it kind of illuminates the whole scene and it's not just one wolf i mean the the scene that we walked up on was one wolf had been uh snared around its chest mm. and it has been it had been trying to escape oh. so it, the snare just gets tighter and tighter and and this wolf kind of like laid down um and in a wolf pack, there's always this internal competition for your status in the pack. And if one wolf shows weakness, another wolf will pounce on that and oftentimes kill that wolf. So what had happened was this first wolf had been snared and was in trouble. And another wolf, a part of its pack, started to eat this wolf alive. So oh. when we walked up on this scene, we were looking at one wolf eating another wolf. Um, and the wolf that was eating the other wolf, when it saw us jetted out towards us and by pure luck it had also been snared around its hind leg which prevented it from getting to us because it would have been you know we wouldn't have been able to protect ourselves because of how close we were and how dark it was and how unprepared we were but thankfully this wolf was snagged on its hind leg and it was frothing at the mouth and barking at us and this woman, I have, I'm filming this woman and I have my back to this thing as it's kind of showing all its teeth and, and doing what it does. And she pulls up her gun and it jams and she can't get a shot off. And then I look over my other shoulder and now my safety guy has his gun out. So there's two guns pointed at me and I have a wolf behind me and I'm in quite a pickle. And <laughs> she ends up throwing down her gun and she scrambles through all of her layers of clothing to try and get her handgun um, and she pulls out her handgun and because of the how frantic the situation was she just starts shooting a lot of bullets um, oh my God. not very accurately um, and um, finally does get the wolf, both wolves and put them out of their misery misery as humanely as possible but that would be a crazy story of a animal encounter, I guess. I have. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. I guess. <laughs> on, on television, on television, it all looks very, very clean. She walks up on the wolves. She pulls out her gun. Bang, bang! They're down. Everything's good. But the, the I would say the reality of that one was a lot more intense than yes. what was shown. So I guess you know because there were like two. If we're thinking about like identity or thinking about you know like 
who we are inside and like the job that we have to do. How were you switching back and forth between like get the shot, like the cinematographer, like get the shot, make sure you don't miss this, right? This is like a really big deal to kind of happen on camera. And there's a wolf behind me and two people have guns out pointed. Like, did you turn around? Did you just keep filming? Like, how did you battle? What was that internal battle like for you? Honestly, I wish I could tell you. I kept filming. Um, I, okay, I stayed in it. consummate professional. Yeah, I mean, but like I, I would be lying if... I, I don't think it happens too often, but a very... Yeah, just very scary situation. And yeah, you don't want to be that guy that, that dies making a reality television you show. You really don't, Ross. It, you, you really you don't. don't. It's not a... That wouldn't be a good end to my story. So um, yeah, I don't... Quite frankly, I don't know. I kept filming. I, I think like... You know, people always ask me and a lot of the vet stuff I, I've filmed where you're filming like surgeries and they're like, how can you just sit there and look at all like the nitty gritty of what's going on? And honestly, the camera c provides like this weird barrier between what you like, what, you know, you're looking at it through a viewfinder. Yeah. Um, but it doesn't I don't know. I don't know if it's like a, a flip that switches um, in in my mind, but you, you just don't process it the same way i think if i were just to sit there and watch surgeries be performed i'd be a lot more affected than when i'm filming it and i'm focusing on a million other things that kind of make you frame what you're seeing differently um but yeah yeah i mean i, I yeah i've had lots of times where i've feared for my safety um uh, while working but that's why i do it because it's fun and it's an adventure yeah, I was picturing at the end of that, you know, wolf story to be like, you know, like dot, dot, dot. And that's why I became a producer. <laughs> like, <laughs> so, um, so talk to me. So you are now a producer. You're a producer on this new show, on this like National Geographic show. So, yeah, talk to me a little bit about um, that, how that came about. I want to know a little bit more about the show. And you like you seem pretty young to be a producer, and uh, is it the director of cinematography? Like you, you've you've risen pretty quickly in your career into really like high profile positions in at, at, at in these companies. For I mean, National it doesn't get better than National Geographic, right? You grew up in Vancouver. It's this gorgeous, beautiful place. You love mountain biking. You love hiking. You love being in the mountains. Like, how did this all happen? And yeah, where do you go from here? Um, well, that, I mean, the shift into producing, I think is just a natural, especially on this, the types of television shows I make, um, you know, it's a lot of my work, I would say, I don't know, I think I've done six shows in Alaska, six or seven shows in Alaska at this point. Um, and it was something, you know, especially earlier on in my career, I was able to get, um, more opportunity and more responsibility because I was working on these shows in Alaska where the crews are smaller. Um, and everyone's got to wear a lot of hats and I was comfortable like in the woods and being out in these places where I think it was easier for me to, you know, focus on learning the other aspects because like, okay, being out in the woods is like, I got that. I know how to do that. Like that's not autopilot, but uh, you know, I, I'm comfortable with this so I can, I can focus on like, okay, what are the producers doing? What, you know, how does this all work? So it's just been a natural progression. And uh, most of the producing I do is all while I'm still holding the camera. So I'm, I'm what they call a producer shooter uh, now. So I'll, I'll shoot and also produce. 
Um, and it's just been, you know, that's common in this type of television and it's been just a natural progression. I've, I'm young, but I've, I've, I got in early enough. Like, you know, we were talking about the daily show. That was, that was, geez, almost 11 years ago now. So I've, I've been on my fair share of sets and I've been around this for long enough to, to know what I'm doing and be confident in what I'm doing and be able to run a crew and kind of, um, show, you know, some of my colleagues that I know, I know how to do this and they're confident enough throwing me into wild situations and making these kind of shows. Sorry. I don't know if that quite answers your question. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It does seem like a natural progression. Also when you're stuck in Alaska in a tent with three other guys, what else are you going to do except find out how the, how the, you know, the sauce is made. Exactly. And I, you know, when you have a natural interest, this, this industry quickly weeds out the people that just want to do it because it's cool. Because if that's the only reason why you're doing it, you're probably not going to have the work ethic to, to push yourself to get better. I'm still like with every project I'm due, I, I try to figure out, okay, like, what is this going to give me? Like, what can I take from this? What am I going to learn? What kind of journey am I going to go through? That's going to make myself better at doing this for a living. Cause I don't want to be stagnant ever. Um, I want to, you know, be a better camera operator. I want to learn how to use more equipment. I want to get better at producing and learn how to work with people. Um, and you know, it's, it's a process for sure. Yeah. It's also why I think you basically taught yourself like drone photography, you know, it's like, oh yeah. What else can I learn? What other skill set? What, you know, and you got into it like pretty early and you were just like yeah now I'm you know now I'm a drone pilot and like the the shots are gorgeous it's so cool that you were just able to kind of figure it out another thing you were just able to figure out I saw drone work um early you know I wanted to I wanted to be behind the camera um and I saw drone stuff early on as my opportunity a lot of the older guys weren't uh, they weren't looking at it. They, you know, they have their careers all dialed and it's like a lot of the time they're like, Oh, we'll just bring in someone to do drones. But I, I saw it as my opportunity. It's like, okay, I can start shooting if I'm the drone guy. So let's, let's figure this out. And I, I bought my first drone by saving all my daily meal per diem from one of the shows I worked on. I was just like, you know, skimping on lunches for a couple months and I mustered up enough bucks to to buy a drone. And then I was like, okay, now I have this. And now I need to, start using it on my own time and figure out how I can actually get on set doing this. And I was able to do that pretty quickly. And now I've been flying for uh, like eight years now, fully, fully licensed in Canada and the U S and it's, I mean, most people know how to do it at this point now, but um, it's, it's just another tool in your tool belt, you know? And um, it's a lot of fun too. I would be lying if I said it wasn't. No, I mean, I, I love that for you because also knowing how much you love being in the woods, now you get to just, you know, take this, you know, machine and see things that you'd never be able to see on your own and you get paid for it. Yeah. You yep, get lots exactly. of money for it. I love that. It makes me so happy for you. Oh, <laughs> uh, thank you. Yeah, I love it. Flying drones is always fun. So with a... Uh, with Life Below Zero Port Protection, the National Geographic show, is that one as dangerous? Like, what? Tell me about this show. What? What? What is it about? And what? Are, what are you working on? Or what did you do for it? Uh, so, Port Protect or Life Below Zero Port Protection is part of like the Life Below Zero kind of family of shows. I think there's four Life Below Zero shows, and we're Port Protection is a small little community off the road system on Prince of Wales Island in Southeast Alaska. Um, and it's, um, 
uh, like I said, just a tiny little community that I think w- it was once booming with, you know, fishing. Um, they used to have like a fish buyer there. So these big fishing boats would go out at sea for, you know, months at a time and they would come to Port Protection and sell all their fish and kind of have somewhere to hang out for a little bit. Um, now it's it doesn't so much have the the fishing going on because of the climate of that industry. But um, essentially what we do on the show is we follow the day-to-day lives of uh, a whole bunch of people that live within the community and just you know, you get a taste and feel for what life is like in Port Protection. It's it's cutting firewood. It's catching your own fish or shooting your own deer, or, you know, doing whatever home projects you, you need to get done. It's people living what I think a lot of us would consider a simple life, similar to like what I was doing on The Last Alaskans. But I think what you quickly find out is that these simple lives, living a simple life is a lot of hard, hard work. Um, it's like I said, cutting your own firewood, getting your own water, anything that needs to be done. You, you can't look around and have anyone else do it. It's your job to do it. And you, you know, you don't always have the right tools or the right materials, but you got to salvage everything and you got to be thrifty and got to figure things out. So I spent the last year, um, working and living with these people from, I think I, I think I was working from March or April to December, um, back and forth up there all year. Um, and it's, I, I most likely will be doing that again this year too. Um, and it's a lot of fun. I have the opportunity on that show. I kind of have a unique position in that the show is made, um, the crews are three man teams. Um, uh, there's three, three man teams and then there's one, one man team and I am the one man team. So I literally get to just pack my bag and hop on a boat and go make television by myself every day. And it's that to have that kind of freedom um is a lot a lot of fun it's really really fun it's so well it's fun for me too or like I know it's fun for you because you get to do what you love but then as you know someone who sort of you know met you at 18 you know when you were 18 and now kind of seeing what you're doing it's it's absolutely so fun for me too I just think it's so fabulous to be able to watch what you're doing and you know I think I've told you before I'm really excited you know for when you win Emmys and Golden Globes and Oscars and all the stuff like whatever it is that you want to do it's great to know that like whatever you set out your mind to do like you whatever you decide to do or set your mind to you're going to figure it out you're going to make it work it's that same work ethic you know that you had in college that you have now except like the world is you know your playground it really is it's so great to see Oh, thank you. Like, like I said before, you were especially like early on, extremely instrumental in just opening that door and making me realize that this was a possibility and that you just got to work at it and you got to figure it out. And I, like I said, I've been doing that ever since. So you're, you're a big part of this journey. Well, I appreciate that. I didn't say the thing at the beginning so that you would, I didn't apologize for my dumb, dumb Instagram message so that you, you would say that, but I, I do appreciate it. I just have one last question. Well, two last questions. One, um, now that you're a producer, do you see things differently? Right. Cause you kind of started as a cinematographer and you're like, Oh, I'm going to go out and get this shot. I'm going to go out and get this shot. Now that you're on the other side of it and you're a producer, not that you're on the other side of it because you're still doing it, but like how how has it changed how you approach cinematography? Um, it's it's taught me to to just turn to you know turn your brain on a lot 
more and just like uh, essentially when you're on set never turn it off because I, I think it producing you're you're way more keyed into the people that you're working with and putting on camera um how are they feeling right now what are they going through what are they thinking about and uh, putting the camera on that in ways that that shows that and tells that and I, it, it's it's just it's a people game producing it really is it's it's just taking note of how people work and how they do things and how they react to things and um, and working with them. I, I don't like it when, I mean, people say producing is manipulating. I'm sure on some shows it is. Like, I don't like, like, the, like I don't The like, Bachelor. Exactly. I mean, <laughs> It bachelor, all comes back to The Bachelor. Yeah, they throw those people in a room and get them liquored up and then they send them out to go make bad decisions. Oh, it's just a cesspool. I don't, <laughs> I, don't, I don't think that's the type of producing I do. And if my producing career will... Um, ever venture outside of some of the shows I do in Alaska? I'm not sure. You know, I th it's it's just all about people and and reading people and learning about people and and just staying attuned to that at all times because you know they're your story. Awesome, and I I can't wait to see what you do next. It's it's you know again you're you're so young you've already accomplished so much and it's like wow what you know like ten years from now what are we going to be talking about you know and the projects that you've worked on I I hope we make it you know an annual thing that be or every ten years or every five years kind of check in and find out what you're doing I would just love that I'd love that as well we should definitely do that awesome thanks for being on the show thank you so much I appreciate it. You can learn more about the show at funwithfailure.com. If you want to say hi or find out about sponsorship opportunities, our email address is fun at funwithfailure.com. And if you like what you hear, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to the show. Thanks for listening. And until next time, go have some fun. QueenCityPodcastNetwork.com.